and grab a Bible. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and Bud will thrust a Bible into it. Happy New Year. First Sunday of 2024, first opportunity to celebrate communion together. So we will defer some of our worship time to after the message. Open table communion this morning, and when we do that, we typically allow a little bit more time uh, for worship. Excited to celebrate communion together. And the key word there is together. Church and Sunday and worship and fellowship and the Lord's Supper. These are things we do together as the body of Christ. And sometimes, I know you've noticed, sometimes together is hard. I got home last Sunday and I realized I'd, I'd actually managed to mess with my head a little. You know, sometimes people will tell me after service, oh man, like, you know, the message this morning really messed with me. Sometimes it messes with me. And, and sometimes I know it while I'm teaching it, and sometimes it sneaks up on me. That was last Sunday. I got home, I did the Mr. Rogers thing, took off my, took off my shoes, put on my slippers, put on a sweater, and I realized that I'd messed with my own head. Or the Lord did, or both of us did. But introducing last week's message, I, I previewed at the beginning of the message, the application was going to be about the vision that the Lord has given us, the vision that we have for Calvary this year. And in teeing that up, I, I said, we've got to be careful. And, and, I, and I really wanted to be careful because I don't want to do what we did for you. Well, what a lot of churches did. Thankfully, we didn't because we weren't organized enough. But a lot of churches four years ago teed up their year with a, with a message about their 2020 vision. And I'm glad that we ducked that by God's grace because I'm pretty sure I mean, I haven't taken a census, but I'm pretty sure that not one of those Vision 2020 messages talked about COVID or masks or vaccines or opening or closing or distancing. I know that none of them talked about George Floyd or race or rioting or lives that matter. I doubt many talked about the election. Was it stolen and was it an insurrection and who's guilty of what and who decides? 2020 was a rough year by any measure for all of us. It was a tough year for the church. Church in America, church around the world, it was a tough year for this church. Because we had disagreements over every one of the issues that I just mentioned and the issues surrounding the issues, the, the second and third, or, third order implications of the issues. It challenged our unity. Those of you who were here, you remember challenged our unity at times it threatened to fracture our unity and in some respects it did people left calvary in 2020 and in 2021 because they didn't see unity at least not the unity that they wanted to see they looked around and they didn't see brothers and sisters looking back instead they saw discord and disunity and it's funny not funny ha-ha, funny weird, <laughs> how, how just mentioning 2020 last week, I, it was a throwaway kind of a thing. I was just using it to get to something else, and it still managed to mess with my head because of everything that happened. 
But you know, God redeems. <clears throat> because thinking about it, remembering it and processing it, and then, and then praying about it, taking it to the Lord, brought me to a conviction. <clears throat> and I think that's why the Lord allowed it in the first place. Brought me to a spoken by the word of God, confirmed by the spirit of God, determination, whatever 2024 brings. And we can't possibly know everything that is going to happen. Whatever 2024 brings, this church is going to pursue unity in Christ. The kind of unity Paul talks about this morning as we continue our study in Ephesians 2. Lord, as we look to your word, it is so important that we understand what you're saying and what you mean, what you intend for our lives. Every message is important. Every word of Scripture is God-breathed and significant and useful. But Lord, we deeply, I deeply want to get this right this morning. Would you keep me, keep Patrick out of the way? Would your spirit speak to our hearts from your word? We ask in your name. Amen. We left off last week in verse 10. Paul talking about how we have been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. It was still December, Christmas carols ringing in our ears. Last week was God and sinners reconciled. That was the first half of the chapter. Verses 1 through 10. How you and I, who were dead in our sin and enemies of God in every sense of the word, are now made alive in Christ and call God Father. That's all of us who have believed, all who have trusted in Christ's blood for salvation. Therefore, having said all of that, Paul continues in verse 11. Having said what he said last week, and because what he said is true, because we have been reconciled to God, therefore, he's going to say this week, we've also been reconciled to each other. That's the big idea this morning. Verse 11, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's talking to us here. He's a Jew speaking to non-Jews. He's a Jew speaking to Gentiles, which is most of who he was writing to at the church of Ephesus and the surrounding churches. Paul's a Jew saying that as Gentiles, before Jesus, you and I were in a bad way. Before the cross, we were all in a bad way. Paul just got done saying that. But as Gentiles, he goes on to point out, we were in an especially bad way. How so? Because God had a special relationship with Israel that he didn't have with us. That we didn't have with him. God had a special relationship with the people of the circumcision, that surgical demonstration of being set apart. Special relationship, a unique relationship, a relationship that was intended to point the world to God. God sent Israel up. He set them up as a missionary people. They were to be a light to the nations. 
They were set apart from God, for God to point people to God. They were set apart so that when people looked at Israel and said, you're different, you're really different, what makes you different? In asking the question, they would discover the answer. They would discover the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know it didn't exactly play out that way. Israel, as of now, has not fulfilled God's plans for her. But Paul still has a point. (laughs) Because Israel was a nation set apart, and before Jesus, the Gentile world was very much on the outside looking in. Verse 12, we were separated from Christ. No promise of a Savior, a Deliverer. We were separated from the nation Israel. We had no rights, no status, no citizenship. We were separated from the covenants, the promises that God made to Israel. The promises he made to Moses, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David. God said that some of those promises would flow to the nations through Israel, Genesis 12, 3, and so forth. Some of the promises will, will flow to the nations through Israel, but that was about it. Long story less long, still verse 12, the Gentiles had no hope, no promise of salvation, no God who could bring them salvation. We had gods, ugly ones. You ever notice how idols are always ugly? Why is that? Because we make them in our own image. We had gods, but we had no access to the true and living God. But now, verse 13, big pivot. But now in Christ Jesus, things are different. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul's paralleling the structure that he used in the first half of the chapter. Remember last week we started off talking about how we were all dead and depraved and defiant and doomed and all the other things? Paul just said that again, but but specifically calling out the Gentiles. He said, you were dead. And we were. That was true for all of us. But but especially Gentiles. We were outcasts, aliens, strangers. Israel called us dogs. If we'd been paying attention, we would have been despairing, Paul says. But then he pivots. He says, but who are you now? Verse 4 Last week, he said, you were dead, but you've been made alive in Christ Jesus. Verse 13, he said, you had no hope, but you have been redeemed. You've been brought near to God, nearer even than God's chosen people were. We've been brought as near as a person can be by the blood of Jesus Christ. And here's Paul's point. In bringing Jew and Gentile both near to God... By allowing each of those distinct people groups to enter into the same relationship with God, Jesus has brought them near each other. In fact, he's made them part of each other. He's made them one with each other. You know, if, if, if one person starts on this side of the room and the other starts on that side of the room and we both head to the sound booth, we're going to converge back there. We're going to be in the same place. So too with Jesus. If Jesus saves one group of people over here and one group of people over there and they both move close to Jesus, they'll end up in the same place. That's why Paul says in verse 14, He himself is our peace who has made both one. Jesus is our peace. 
is our peace. Didn't just make peace. Didn't just bring peace. He became peace and today is our peace. And that was always his mission. Jesus is our peace. How does that work? How are people reconciled to one another in Christ Jesus? I heard one pastor explain it this way. He said, well, the friend of my friend is my friend. But I think it's more than that. I think a better way of explaining that is that two things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. If two times five is ten and four plus six is ten, then two times five equals four plus six. The Gentile who comes to Christ, the Jew who comes to Christ, are both in Christ. So much so that the Jew and Gentile part doesn't matter anymore. Doesn't exist anymore. Still verse 14, Jesus has broken down the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile and merged them. And that phrase makes us think of the literal wall. We we were in Acts 21 recently enough. You remember that literal wall that they thought Paul had brought a Gentile past? And they accused him, he's brought a Gentile into the inner court. Why was that a big deal? Because there was a sign that said, no Gentile is allowed. Whoever is caught will himself be responsible for his own death. And they thought that's what Paul had done back in Acts 21. I'm sure Paul was thinking about that when he wrote these words. But I think he was also referring to the invisible wall separating Israel from the world. The wall comprised of the laws and the commandments and the feasts and the rituals and the festivals. The wall that collectively said, Jews are over here, everyone else is over there. And what he's saying for the church, the wall's gone. Doesn't exist. Romans 10.4, Jesus is the end of the law for anyone who believes. Jesus fulfills the law for those who come to him. He abolished in his flesh, verse 15, the enmity. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And in the process, still verse 15, created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. It's gone. Jews and Gentiles didn't like each other very much. That is to say, not at all. Not even a little bit. And we see that that animosity still reverberates in the world today, right? It's getting worse, and it's going to get worse yet before Jesus returns. Scripture says so. In Jesus' day, that animosity ran deep. Didn't need to be that way. Being God's people should have made Israel humble. Instead, it made them prideful. And that made the Gentile world resentful, which made Israel more prideful, which made the Gentile world more resentful, and they just kept pouring gasoline on each other's fires. To the point where Jews and Gentiles were the most separated, the most segregated, the most mutually loathing groups in the history of history. Studying the life of Christ, we talked about how the Jews were convinced. They believed and they taught that Gentiles were created for one reason, to be kindling, fueling the fires of hell. 
There was a proverb in Israel. Crush the best serpent. Kill the best Gentile. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. It's one of the best-known Bible stories. What we don't stop and reflect on enough is what the Samaritan did. No self-respecting Jew in Jesus' day would have done that. In Jesus' day, it was actually not lawful for a Jewish person to help a Gentile woman give birth. Why? Because that would be helping bring another heathen into the world. That was the Jewish mind. And then the Greco-Roman world was, was no better, was no different. Plato, who we don't think of as the most militaristic of the philosophers, said, anyone who is not Greek is by definition my enemy. <laughs> and if you read Greek and Roman authors of the time, you'll find that was a pretty universal sentiment. But on this side of the cross, Paul is saying the same thing here he told the Galatians years earlier. In the church, the division that used to exist between Jew and Gentile simply doesn't matter anymore. Doesn't exist anymore. Now, there are still Jews and Gentiles in the world today. And, like I said, the animosity between them still very evident in every morning's headlines. But at the cross, Jesus reinvented humanity in a very real sense. At the cross, Jesus created a third category that didn't exist before. There's still Jew, there's still Gentile, but now there's a third option called the church. That's what Paul was telling the Corinthians about when he talked about us being a new creation a new category of human. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you want to track it down. In Christ, we have the opportunity to leave our heritage, our lineage behind, and become something altogether new. One of the early church fathers expressed it this way. He said, it's as if God took one statue made of silver and another statue made of lead, threw them both in the furnace, and then took out a statue made of gold. No silver, no lead left, no sign that it was ever there, only something better. That's what Jesus did. And that's what Jesus does Paul said so in verse 14, 15, 16. He says it again, verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. That's a poetic way of saying he preached peace to the Gentiles who were far from God and Jews who were, relatively speaking, near to God. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Peace. That's the purpose of the cross, and Paul's reminding us it's the product of the cross. And, and that's the consistent teaching of Scripture. This isn't a brand new idea that Paul thought up. It's a wonderful idea that runs all through Scripture that Paul is over the moon about. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah was talking about this. Seven centuries before Christ, speaking of Messiah, Isaiah said, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. 
speaking of Jesus, speaking of his mission, his ministry to bring peace. A few chapters before that, Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation. We're close enough to Christmas. Isaiah 9, 6 is still ringing in our ears. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Christmas Eve, many of us gathered here to sing Christmas carols and read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. And every time I do, I I hear Linus's voice. (laughs) The angel appeared to the shepherds, and suddenly, Luke 2, verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. Fast forward to the night before the cross. Upper room discourse in John 14. Jesus is imparting last words to his guys. John 14, 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not not peace like the world knows peace. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Peace. Among Jesus' last words to the disciple. Just a few chapters later, still in John Jesus appears to the disciples in his resurrected body, and the first words that most of them hear from the resurrected Christ, peace. John 20, 19, the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. And they looked at his wounds and he said it again, peace be with you. Eight days later, they were back, Thomas was with them, and Jesus showed up again and said, peace be with you. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry. Matthew 5, verse 9, the Sermon on the Mount. Go bring peace, he said at the end of his ministry. Preach the gospel to every creature, he said, commissioning his his disciples. Preach the gospel to every creature, Mark 16, not just those who look like you. Make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, not just the ones from the same place as you. Be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, not just those who are close to you. Acts chapter 1. And it it takes him a little while, but eventually the disciples pick up on this. Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter, Peter, it falls into place for him. In truth I perceive, he says, that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Jesus came to make peace. Peace between people and God? But something else besides that, he came to make peace between people and people. Jew and Gentile, and everyone who makes up the family of God. Whatever defined us before, distinguished us from one another before, whatever differentiates us in the world, it disappears forever under the blood. We've got access to the same God, verse 18. God who adopted all of us and brought us into the same family. We've got access to that same God, and we have it the same way. There are no second-class saints. None of us who are in Christ Jesus are separated from Him, and none of us who are in Christ should be separated from one another. Verse 19, Now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners, 
but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Paul's winding up this section, doing the thing that he does, where he says the same thing three different ways. So what did Paul just say three different ways? He said, Jews and Gentiles together are now countrymen, verse 19. We're fellow citizens of heaven. He says, Jews and Gentiles together, same verse, are now family. We're part of the household of Christ, same father, all adopted brothers and sisters. And third, he said, Jews and Gentiles, verse 20 and following, together are living stones side by side in the temple. That's a, that's a powerful statement if you think about it, because the Ephesians had, had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They had the temple to Diana, temple that the Jews wouldn't be caught dead in. The Jews in Jerusalem had the temple that if the Gentiles were caught in it, they'd be dead. Each of these people groups had their own temple, but now both together comprise a better temple. A temple whose cornerstone is Jesus. A temple indwelt by the Holy Spirit, sent by Jesus. Made of people, redeemed by Jesus. People that we read in Revelation 5.9 come from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Upon my rock I will build this church, Jesus said in Matthew 16. And that's the church he was talking about. A church at peace with him and at peace with itself. A church in which the greatest racial, religious, ethnic, cultural divide in the history of the world was erased, eradicated, gone, done. What's the application for you and me? I think it's simple. I think it's inescapable. I think it's critically important. I think it's this. If that rift, the greatest rift, the deepest animosity between people is healed by Christ's blood, then every smaller rift, dispute, disagreement must be also. Must be. Two things equal to the same thing are equal to each other, we said. Corollary of that is two things equal to the same thing can't not be equal to each other. And when we pretend that we're not one body, when we act as if we're not one body, when we allow anger, frustration, envy, jealousy, hatred, e even indifference and insensitivity, when we allow those things to define our relationships in the church, when hatred and hostility, or even just avoidance 
and animosity becomes our settled position toward any group in the church, we're at war with ourselves, family. And we're dishonoring the cross. And, and, and I think that most of us would, would say amen pretty comfortably to that when it comes to racial animosity. I, 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 I think that most of us would say, yeah, there's no place for racism or prejudice or bias in the body of Christ. On the, on the subject of, of, of different people, groups, and different cultures, Ethan made it to Uganda. Um, he asks for prayer. And Asia Ascaros, Carol Ascaros' one of Carol's daughters, is also on a mission trip right now. She's on a medical mission trip to West Africa. And, and, and I got both of those prayer requests within a few hours of each other. And just, you know, the way brains work, it made me think of a story I heard about from a church in Tanzania, African nation just a little bit south of where, where Ethan is in Uganda. It's a church where believers from the Ngoni tribe and the Sangha tribe and the Tumuka tribe worship together. Why is that remarkable? Because there are believers in the church that can remember the days when people from their tribes would come home bragging about how many people of other tribes they'd killed, maimed, or raped. Their relationship was defined in terms of how much blood was spilled, how many homes and villages were burned, and now they sit together, sing together, study together, worship together, take communion together. And, and we hear stories like that, and, and, I, and I think mostly we say, well, yeah, that's what the blood of Christ does. God heals, he unifies. But here's the thing, if we look at the church closer to home, if we look at the church where we live, I think that we have to ask, is that what we're letting the blood of Christ do? That's what the blood of Christ does, but are, are we letting it? Is the blood of Christ doing it? For he himself is our peace. I'll read from the NIV. Jesus, who's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. But, but, but somehow we keep finding ways to rebuild walls. We keep redrawing lines. We keep redefining ourselves in terms of us and them. And us, we ourselves, we're the real questions, and them, Christians, and them over there, the people that we disagree with, the people that disagree with us, they're strangers, they're outcasts, and, 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 and family, that's wrong. That's unbiblical. It's immoral. It's sin. Let's talk about the quiet part out loud. Who we are in Christ is not a function of how we vote. Our standing in the kingdom is not defined by our affinity for or animosity toward certain politicians or, or our perspective on the legitimacy of the last election. Who we are in God's eyes is not determined by how we do the difficult calculus between civic responsibility and personal liberty. In 
and how that affects our perspective on things like masks and vaccines and opening and closing and distancing. Who we are as the church is, is, is not determined by what we think our nation ought to do, how it ought to regard, how it ought to remember the shameful periods of our history. Whether statues should be torn down, streets renamed. We can disagree about these things, and we do. <laughs> we can disagree about the war in Ukraine or the ongoing war in Gaza, and we do. We can disagree about the upcoming election, and we do already. Because <laughs> we're different people. Come from different backgrounds, we've had different experiences. We've got different perspectives, different convictions, and we're gonna find things to disagree about as long as we're still on this earth. As, well, as long as we're living this life, disagreement is inevitable. And, and I'm gonna say it's it's good. Because that's iron sharpening iron. Somebody who's wise and godly, who thinks about a subject completely different than me, that's good. That's, that's, that's the safety in the multitude of counselors, to have my perspective challenged. We've got things we disagree about, and we're going to keep finding things to disagree about. What we must not do, Paul's reminding us this morning, what we must not do, verse 19, is let our worldly disagreements become more dear to our hearts than our heavenly citizenship. What we must not do is let our family disputes separate brothers and sisters. What we must not do is let the cares of this life tear down the walls of the temple. So Patrick, what do I do? What do I do with the people who just make me, you know, crazy? Because they're so wrong and pig-headed and they won't listen to the point I don't even want to try talking to them. A couple suggestions as we wrap up. Three suggestions. And, and, and in presenting these, I'm leading heavily on a pastor in Washington, D.C. named Jamie Dunlap. He's written several books on church and community, and what I've read, I haven't read all of it, but what I've read is pretty good. He starts off with, with the observation, God planned it this way. He made it this way when he determined that Christ alone would be the cornerstone of this thing called church. Not Christ and how we read the Constitution. Not Christ and whether we send our kids to public schools. Not Christ and which news channel that we watch. Not Christ and anything else. Christ alone. Had to be that way. Gotta be that way or the gospel isn't the gospel anymore. Our fellowship has to be in Christ alone or God would be sharing his glory with people and issues and opinions and all kinds of other stuff. Instead, he put people with issues and opinions and all kinds of other stuff together, and he said, figure it out. Find your way to unity. Go back to our passage in Ephesians. If you think about it, God didn't have to do church the way that he did it. He could have said, okay, Jews, you've been over here. Stay over here. Worship me over here. Gentiles, you've been over here. Stay over here. This is your place for worship. Would have saved a lot of headaches. 
And he knew that bringing Jew and Gentile together in the church would cause a lot of headaches. He knew it would be a headache, which is why, think back to last year when we were in Romans, that's why after spending most of Romans 14 talking about how Jewish and Gentile believers were supposed to be fellowshipping with one another despite their differences, Paul prays, I love this, starting in Romans 15, 5, Paul prays, May the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward each other according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore receive one another, love each other, serve each other, just as Christ also received, loved, served us to the glory of God. It, it just... It, I, I, how, he, how he starts blows me away. The God of all patience and comfort. Paul's praying knowing what he needs. <laughs> English Standard Version translates that, the God of endurance and encouragement. And I might like that even better. The Holy Spirit's preparing us for the reality we're going to have to work our way to unity. It's not going to just happen. It's going to be a challenge. But on the other side of that work, God gets more glory. God is glorified when people who disagree about all the things we disagree about put aside those differences to worship God with one hand and one voice. God is glorified when we put aside all of the differences, all of the things that we disagree about to love one another. I mean, that's the reason we're here, right? Love God, love one another. Want to get practical about unity in the church? That's it. What's the answer to finding unity with people whose ideas and opinions and convictions drive you nuts? That's the answer. Love them. You haven't told me how, Patrick. Because <laughs> they're so... the way they are. Three suggestions as we wrap up. First, remember why we're here. We're not here, and I mean here at Calvary, because it's familiar, safe, friendly, the place we've always gone to church. I hope that's not why we're here. We're here, hopefully, because it's the place that God called us and is calling us to love and be loved and serve and be served. We're here because it's the place that God put us for people to see us loving and being loved, despite our differences. And if you think about it, the greater the differences between us and the people that others see us loving, the more glory to God. The greater the differences between us and the people we're loving, the greater the God is that we're testifying to. Why are we here? I'll quote Jamie Dunlap. We're here to be a demonstration that Christ can unite what the world divides. How do we pursue unity? That's one. Remember why we're here. How do we pursue unity? Two, remember how we're here. How did we get here? Paul told us last week, we're here, how? Through God's mercy, love, grace, and kindness. That's how we were saved, every one of us. And that's how we get to love now that we're saved. That was what he said in verse, verse 10. 
Ephesians 2, verse 10, we get to love others with the love that saved us, the love that came for us, the love that died for us when we were all together unlovable. Hurt people hurt people. Remind, we remind each other of that a lot. Hurt people hurt people. But what Jesus tells us is that forgiven people forgive people. Beloved people, people who know that they're loved, love people. And people who have found mercy, find mercy for people. People who know they've received mercy, which we all have, find mercy for people who need it. How do we pursue unity? We remember why we're here. We remember how we're here. Third thing, remember what being here can do. There are no accidents in God's kingdom. If you're here and I'm here, it's because God wants us here together. It's because in God's estimation, we have ministry to each other. In some way, shape, or form, we need each other. That might be time or talent or treasure or any of the usual measures of ministry. It, it, it might be encouragement. It might be rebuke. It might be friction. Part of the ministry that we have to each other might be the way God wants to use us to refine each other. The person whose voice puts me on edge even before I hear what they have to say might be the instrument that God wants to use for my sanctification. Might be the tool that he wants to use to, to sand down Patrick's flesh and polish up a little more grace. That all sounds like a lot of work, Patrick. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, unity costs. And the more it looks like it's going to cost, the more our fight-or-flight reflex kicks in. The more it looks like unity is going to cost, the, the more tempted we are to either just lose it in somebody's face or run somewhere else where maybe we won't feel this way. But before we do either one of those things, we've got to ask ourselves, whatever unity costs, didn't it cost Jesus more? to tear down the wall of animosity? Didn't it cost Jesus more to make us all members of his family? If he decided it was worth it, if he decided we were worth it, how can we choose anything else? Father, I am really grateful for Paul's prayer. Because Paul, Paul lays himself out and says, I can't do this apart from you, God. I need your encouragement. I need your comfort. I need your grace. I need you to pour into me so that there's any hope of mercy and kindness pouring out of me. You are the God of all comfort because you've given us Paul's words and, and they comfort me. And they remind me I can go boldly to your throne of grace and ask you, Father, to teach me love. I can cry out to you and, and say, fill me with your love. I can rest in you. 
knowing that I, I, I might walk away from conversation still disagreeing, still violently opposed to what my brother or sister stands for, and still overflowing love. Still calling them brother or sister. Still knowing that you've made us family. We're going to celebrate communion today, as I mentioned at the start of service. And we're going to do open table. What does that mean? It means... Becky and, and Essie are going to lead us in, in a couple, three songs, and any time during those three songs, feel free to come up. But I'm going to invite you to think about something. I'm going to invite us to think about something before we do. In, in giving us this ordinance, Jesus, Jesus said when he gathered together at the Last Supper, he said to his guys, as often as you do this, as often as you eat this bread, as often as you drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. Why this symbol? Why this token of remembrance? A lot of times we, we, we go to the Lord's table and we remind ourselves, well, the, the cup is his blood. And Jesus tells us that. It's deep crimson. We don't have to strain ourselves very, very hard to think about Jesus' blood poured out for us as, as we stare at the cup. And the bread that they would have eaten at that Passover meal, the matzah, pierced as Jesus was pierced, striped as his back was striped, dried as Jesus was, was utterly dehydrated, hanging on the cross, water and blood flowing from his side broken for us. Fitting symbols to be sure. But I think that Jesus had another intention in giving us this remembrance, this supper, this meal. Because in his culture, and in Eastern culture today, to eat with someone is not casual. To eat with someone is to become family. To eat and drink with someone is to the Eastern mind, to be part of one another. At the cross, Jesus reconciled us to God. He reconciled us also to each other. And Paul tells us he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given us the ministry to preach the gospel. He's given us the ministry to live in peace. And so I'd encourage you, we've got three songs, we can take our time. Meditate on that. Consider that. And ask yourself, the person sitting here that I know has views and beliefs that I would oppose with my dying breath, can you call them brother? The person who does not understand what you stand for, does not see what is, is so obvious to you, and won't hear it no matter how you try to explain it. Can you call that person sister? And if that's a struggle, well, we have this time 
to do what Paul did, to cry out to God and say, God, would you heal? God, would you comfort? God, would you bind up? God, would you supply? And when you can call that man who votes differently, brother, when you can call that sister who believes differently, sister, then go ahead and partake on your own. Come on up, take a piece of bread, take a cup, and as the Lord leads, you don't have to hold it or wait for anybody else this morning. Just have that that moment between you and God.